What's going on, everyone? Today is another Q&A episode where I'm answering your questions. If you missed episode 204, I would urge you to go back and give that one a listen. Uh, we covered a bunch of listener questions on that one. Today, we're gonna finish up with a bunch more. Tons of information, all very actionable. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated entirely to the hospitality industry. We cover marketing operations and just about everything in between. Each week, I leverage my 20 plus years in the industry to help you build a more profitable and a more sustainable business. I also work directly with operators all over the world through my group coaching programs to help you address and overcome the specific challenges we face in our industry. Curious to learn more? Set up a free 30-minute strategy session by visiting restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Let me show you how simple it can be to run a profitable restaurant. Again, that link is restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. And as always, you will find that link in the show notes. Now, it's been a while since we talked about this, but has your restaurant claimed the employee retention tax credit yet? This is money that is available now, but the program is soon being shut down, so there's some urgency here. Back on episode number 168, I, uh, I had Catherine Tyndall on the show. She's a CPA with Dominion Enterprise Services, and she has helped hundreds of restaurants across the country reclaim hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I'm including a link in the show notes for you to set up a free call with Catherine. Do not wait any longer. Again, there is some urgency, and this money is yours. Many of my clients and a bunch of listeners have jumped on this in the past, and I urge you to do it again. Again, there is urgency here. The program is being shut down soon. There is time. Go set up a free call. You will find that link in the show notes. Now, as I said at the top, today we're doing another Q&A episode uh, answering your questions. I asked uh, I asked a bunch of you to send in questions uh, that we can answer here on the show. You did that, and we are uh, we are covering them. First one today comes from Adalia from California, uh, and she actually had a couple of questions that she sent in. Uh, her first question was about franchising uh, and franchise ownership, uh, and rest assured, I'm going to cover that at a later point. In fact, I'm working on a roundtable, uh, like a panel discussion, where we can talk all about both sides of this. Uh, what should franchisees look for and how to get the best deal, uh, and how would a restaurant uh, move from being an independent, maybe a multi-unit, uh, then uh, adopting a franchise uh, model to become a franchisor. So we're going to cover this in much greater depth uh, down the line. So Dahlia, uh, rest assured, don't worry, we are going to get to this. But the second question you wrote here, we can cover on today's episode. And she writes, what is your advice for a company that is in growth mode and not only expanding the amount of restaurants they have, but also expanding the support, support as in new positions being introduced to help support the restaurants? I love this question. It's a really good one. So Really what you're talking about, I think, is infrastructure. Uh, and this is one of the things that makes growth so difficult in our industry because as you grow, you say, oh, we really need someone to cover this or now we need a department to cover this. 
but adding another salary to the payroll uh, is gonna crush your profitability, right? So I get it. That is one of the big challenges of growing uh, from a single unit to a multi-unit operation, especially uh, when you get into five, 10, 20, 30 units, right? That's difficult uh, as you're going from one to five, as you're going from five to 20, that, that takes time. The best answer I can give you is this, and we'll, we'll get into greater detail. The best thing I can say is this, you gotta get good at zooming out and looking at the organization as a whole, right? So as you do start to grow uh, and you start to grow that infrastructure, you gotta get good at being objective, right? At asking this question, what isn't working anymore? What can we do better? What can we do more effectively or more efficiently? But the key question is what isn't working anymore? There will come a time when you will need, for example, a, a corporate chef, right? Someone to train and oversee all of the individual chefs and sous chefs at the individual separate units. Someone who can help uh, manage inventory and food costs. In many instances, this is someone who can also help coordinate ordering to take advantage of your purchasing power as a growing organization. This will make sense at some point, only you can determine when. We will get to the, the point of when, but again, you have to start by looking at what's not working anymore and you gotta get good at, at seeing the forest for the trees, right? So the same thing when we talk about uh, culinary, we talk about beverage, right? Eventually, you may want someone coordinating all of the ordering across the entire organization. Meaning if you're ordering vodka or tequila for multiple restaurants, you might as well start benefiting from all of that purchasing power you have. So having someone uh, to oversee everything and to coordinate all that efforts um, is gonna become attractive. Um, in time, I think you'll uh, you'll probably need a director of operations, right? Or sometimes we call this like a, like an area manager or a regional manager, someone who can oversee a bunch of different restaurants who can offer support and guidance to the individual general managers, right? So that person, is gotta be someone who's good at, excels at taking the 30,000 foot view, right? Because a GM is focused solely on their property, but a DO, a director of operations, can see inefficiencies by zooming out. And as an organization grows, this becomes an important step. So I would say once you get three, four, five locations, you should have a director of operations or an area manager or a regional manager to oversee all of those five. You can't have five GMs reporting back to the owners, right? There has to be layers of leadership. And I think once you get to three, four or five locations, then that makes sense. In time, you also might wanna add a marketing department, right? This makes a lot of sense. Someone or a group of people who can work with the individual restaurants to market the properties, right? Uh, this would be a team to manage web presence like the website uh, and the Google My Business page, uh, to handle reputation management uh, on review sites like Yelp, Google, TripAdvisor, uh, to send emails and texts and build a comprehensive strategy, uh, to post on social media, to collect all of that content, uh, to manage relationships with the press, and finally, perhaps most importantly, to build an ad strategy. So again, by consolidating all of that work into a marketing department, whether that's one, two, three, 20, 50 people, call it a department, by consolidating that, um, what happens is you bring efficiency to the day-to-day, -day, and most importantly, I find, you free up the managers and the chefs to do what they do best, right? Sending emails, managing SMS, and, and the website isn't what they do best. What they do best is create food, put out food, take inventory, manage costs, train the people, oversee the people. That's what you want them doing. Same thing on the front of the house side, right? Driving revenue, managing the costs, looking at the personnel, really uh, keeping track of the training and all of that.
So eventually then, depending on the size and scope of the company, you might need a business development person, right? This is uh, going to be crucial once you get of a certain size, someone or, or a group of people to scout out new locations, to help you line up financing and to oversee the build out and launch of each new property. Right? You can add all kinds of layers and complexities to the structure, uh, but again, as your question suggests, you've got to make sure you grow in a measured way. So another bit of advice I'll leave you with is this. Think of the corporate team as something separate from each of the individual restaurants. Right, The corporate expenses, think of them as all getting lumped together and then allocated across all of the individual properties as a management fee. Uh, so the salaries, the rent for office space, any of the um, any of the other expenses like utilities and paper costs and all that, lump that all together, right? That's the expense of running a corporate office. Lump it together and then divide it up over uh, all of the properties, over the five, the 10, the 20. Now, you can certainly split it evenly. For example, if it's a $10,000 a month uh, management fee and you have five restaurants, you could simply allocate $2,000 to each of those properties, but I prefer to split it up by size. You can either do square footage of each property, right? Uh, or what I recommend actually is by doing it uh, uh, with revenue. So if this property uh, does 100K a month in revenue and another one only does 80K a month, then the first one should absorb more of the management fee. Does that make sense? I hope so. So when you're growing and you have a corporate office, I would think of that as a separate entity. And then I would allocate all of those expenses evenly or allocated, you know, weight them across all of the properties. That's a better way of thinking about it, right? Uh, of thinking about your expenses here. Um, so I hope that helps. Um, in any event, uh, uh, the most important skill, right? I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. Most important skill is the ability to zoom out and see what the properties, see what the company needs as a whole. Zoom out, take that 30,000 foot view and grow in a measured way. And when you do start building a corporate office, take those, uh, take all those expenses, lump them together and, and allocate a, a management fee to each of the properties. I do wanna go back though, uh, before, we, before we leave this, and I wanna answer uh, another thing that I think you asked in there, right? At the beginning of your question, Adalia. Um, in general, what advice uh, you asked would you give a company that's expanding? So we, we talked about um, as it has to do with the support team and how you grow that corporate infrastructure, but just in general, what advice would you give to a company that's expanding? And here it is. You must get the current property to consistent profits before you move on to the next one. You need a system in place for forecasting and budgeting, for managing COGS and labor, and for hitting the revenue targets that you set for the property. If a property's limping, uh, if, a, if a property's simply limping along, uh, leaving it alone to figure it out on their own will not work. So you have to stabilize one property before you move on to the next. That's the last piece of advice when we're talking about growth, and that goes for anybody. Whether you're moving from one to two, two to five, 10 to 100, you have to get one property set and consistent, put systems in place so that you can watch it from afar and manage it from afar. You gotta figure that out before you go to the next one. All right, now the second question here, uh, Laura asked, how do I put an inventory system in place to manage COGS, right? 
cogs. Cost of goods sold. This is, again, another great question. First and foremost, I can't help. Uh, I would recommend you check out Margin Edge. So Margin Edge is a sponsor of this show. They are a sponsor here because I believe in the product. The product is that good. Uh, it's an inventory system that helps manage your costs in real time. They are, uh, simply put, the best software out there for maintaining inventory and knowing your costs in real time. And for me, it really is a no-brainer to make that investment in yourself and in your restaurant. But the program is only as good as the systems that you put into place. So let's spend a couple of minutes talking about that. First up, you need to take inventory once a month for all of the product you bring in. So food, wine, liquor, beer, soda, anything you bring in to turn around and sell, you need to take inventory at least once a month. Right, And if food cost is a problem, for example, I might even take inventory on some of the proteins once a week. Right, Those are your most expensive items, so it might make sense to track that more frequently. I will tell you, I worked for a restaurant that did their, uh, in, took inventory on their proteins twice a week, every Wednesday and Sunday night at the end of the shift. And it was, uh, it was a great way for them to make sure the expensive product they brought in, right, like the fancy tomahawk chops, the ribeyes, the filet, the lobster, the Dover sole, all of that, that they didn't sit, that they knew what they had on hand, what they needed to order, and they didn't order a, a, an, even a little bit too much. So how do you take inventory now, right? Here it is very easily by counting everything you have on hand. There is no shortcut. There is no easy way on. Uh, there is no easy way out. How do you take inventory by counting everything you have? It is long. It can be tedious. So I'll give you the advice I was once given when I get into management. Many hands make light work. You have certainly heard it before. I didn't make it up. If you're doing inventory, for example, on the first of every month, then you got to make sure everyone knows that they are working that day no matter what. So all the bartenders come in on that day regardless of whether it is uh, their scheduled day off. All the chefs, all the sous chefs, whoever is actually doing the counting, they need to know, right? You have to set the expectation early on. You got to be there on the first. Really, when when you're counting, when you're doing this, really what you're trying to get to is a par system. You wanna figure out how much of each product you need to have on hand at any given time so that number one, you never run out, right? You never have to 86 anything. And number two, so you can minimize waste. And ideally what you uh, wanna get to, uh, I think is a 30% food cost and, uh, and you wanna get your beverage number under 20%. Now you can probably get spirits uh, probably to 15 I know some people that get it underneath, they are amazing people, but really you want 30% food cost, 20% beverage. If you can get that, you will be in really good shape. Again, a program like Margin Edge will make all of that easier. It won't count anything, but it will track your inventory. It will help you set up PARs. It will show you your theoretical food costs in real time and even help you figure out which vendors are giving you the best price. It is an incredible program. If you haven't checked it out, go uh, follow the links that, uh, that are in these show notes um, and go check it out. It really is an incredible program. But understand though, as you're trying to get cogs in line, inventory management will only get you so far. As the last piece of the question that I wanna make sure we talk about, it wasn't, it wasn't in your question, but I think it's an important piece of the answer. Right, Training and portion control are key, right? So making sure bartenders are using jiggers uh, and, and that the cooks are measuring everything they put onto the plate. Uh, also making sure that you're tracking your waste, meaning not only the food that spoils before you get to serve it, 
but also dishes that get sent back to the kitchen. It's really important you track all of that because there's a difference between theoretical food cost and actual food cost. And, and understanding on paper what it should be, we do two ounces of this, six ounces of that, an ounce and a half of that, that's fine. But are you actually putting those portions onto the plate? It's really important. Training is a key piece to that. And oversight, really overseeing the cooks, the bartenders, whoever is dealing with the product. Do those things, and I promise you, you will be in a much better place. I hope that helped answer your question. All right, third question here. Is Instagram dead? I feel like nothing I do is working. We used to get hundreds of likes every time we posted. Now I feel like it's a struggle just to get 20. Should I just stop altogether and focus elsewhere? Again, I love this question. In fact, I was gonna cover this next month, but this is as good a time as any uh, to start talking about social media and, and social media in 2023. So I will say, the algorithm is always changing. We know that, right? This is something we've heard for years. The way that people use these platforms, these social media platforms, is changing. It's continuing to change, right? And one thing that has become more obvious over the last few years is the importance of a paid social strategy. So what you're talking about, right, is that I, I, I post a picture and I used to get hundreds of likes and now I'm only uh, getting uh, a dozen or a couple of dozen. What you're talking about is an organic social strategy. So from the beginning, before I dive into the answer here, let's talk about this, right? I believe... Social media is not a social platform. It's not meant for you to like other people's photos and you to catch up with your Aunt Susie or whatever. Social media, especially Facebook and Instagram, are the most sophisticated advertising platforms ever created because they get to learn more about us and our likes, what drives us as human beings, than anything else in the world. That is incredible. Right, And it, it, it allows us to target our people, our audience, our prospective customers with greater specificity than ever before. So when we're talking about Instagram and Facebook in this particular question, the, uh, the listener was asking about Instagram, right? Instagram has changed. The algorithm has changed because the way people use these sites has changed. We have to address this and say Twitter has changed considerably. Uh, all politics aside, uh, Twitter has changed. Um, I don't know that it was ever the platform for restaurants uh, to be on. It's certainly not really a, a, a visual platform, and we are a visual medium. We really succeed when we uh, when we can be visual. Um, so Twitter has changed quite a bit. Uh, Facebook and Instagram have uh, aged, let's say, uh, gracefully, gracelessly, whatever they are. They have aged. And now we've got new players like Snapchat. Now we get got new players like TikTok and more and more and more. So the question is, right, at the end, should I, uh, should I just stop altogether and focus elsewhere? And I think unspoken in this is what do I need to do to fix this? Like I said, the algorithm is changing, the way people are using these has changed. TikTok is changing the whole thing. So right up front, I would say, if you're a restaurant and you're not on TikTok yet, you should be on TikTok. Now, before you just uh, go and, and start a TikTok account, I would recommend you go and start your own account and go play around on the platform for two weeks, meaning, uh, go onto the platform at least 15 minutes every single day and see who's on there, see what sort of content does well on there, see what sort of content grabs your attention, try and see other brands and restaurants that are on there. I think you'll find that a lot of restaurants are not on there yet, but there are a lot of people on there. There are people with millions and millions of followers. So there are millions of people on these platforms. It's a great way to reach out to people and it is simply 
not the best. It is simply what's next. So just like we always hear, right? Location, location, location. We want to be where the people are, right? We pay extra for rent so we can be where there's a lot of foot traffic. I'm telling you, there is a lot of traffic going to sites like TikTok. Now, when we talk about Instagram, we, we have to take into account what TikTok has done. TikTok is a short form video platform. So you take vertical video, right? Vertical video is what does best. And uh, anywhere up to about 60 seconds. Yes, you can do longer videos, but 60 seconds and under is really the heart of the platform. And so it has pushed Instagram and Facebook a little bit to adopt that sort of mentality. That sort of mentality. Instagram, if you go and read the the user agreement, they don't. They are not a, a photo sharing site anymore. They are a media sharing site. They are video first. We said this a couple of years ago, and it is just um, it is just more true now than ever before. Video first. Video, video, video. So if you are still posting photos, and it used to get two hundred uh, likes, and now it gets twenty. That's probably because the Instagram is tilted towards videos and specifically towards reels, right? So on TikTok, on TikTok you create reels. Same thing on Instagram, you create reels. They are, um, they are discriminating against everything else that is not a reel. So first and foremost, I don't think you should stop. I think you should keep going, but I just think you should recalibrate and do things differently. I think you should be putting video first. Now, the difficulty of this is that it is hard, it is time consuming, and it is more expensive, let's say, than doing photos, but it's still required. And and the power is still in your hands. The power to reach uh, thousands or millions of uh, potential customers is still there. So when we talk about, again, a social media strategy, we've got to talk about an organic strategy and a paid strategy. Organic means I post something on my own, right? I go in, I take a picture, or I take a video, post it, and uh, you know, and and see what happens. Um, get likes, get comments, all of that. That has been slowly dying. The reach on an organic post um, has been dying for quite some time. Pretty much, I think, since the uh, since the platform got um, uh, got uh, bought by by Facebook or now Meta. So, when we talk about an organic strategy. I would probably say five out of six posts should be video. They should probably be vertical video and they should probably be reels on Instagram. That's what I believe is working. You can put some photos on there, but you gotta make sure five out of six photos, uh, five out of six pieces of content you put up should be video, right? Same thing we've said here on this show before. Think of your content pillars, right? Every piece of content I put up is going to fit into one of these five buckets. Those are your content pillars. So food and beverage and the space and people and the neighborhood. Those might be my five pillars. So every piece of content has to appeal to at least one of those, uh, one of those pillars. Same thing though. Instead of taking still photos, I want you to take video. It's easy. It's fun. There are tons of resources online. Just Google it. How to take a great reel. Hey, how to take a great reel for a restaurant. How, just Google it. You will find really great stuff. And go see what grabs your own attention when you see other people doing it. And then on the other side, and this was not asked here, but I got to put it in here. And I'm going to do an entire episode on this about um, uh, Facebook and Instagram ads strategy because you need an ad strategy 
um, as part of your your social uh, as part of your as part of your social media marketing, right? So we will cover that later. If you are not spending money, I want you to start earmarking some money because 2023 is the year you are going to start spending money on Facebook and Instagram ads, and I promise you, uh, there is a return on that investment. You will see increased revenue. So there's that question. Hopefully that helps. Hopefully I covered that pretty well. Now we've got two more questions to cover today, including one about ghost kitchens, uh, which I know a bunch of you are curious about. So we will get to those after a word from another one of our sponsors. Now running a restaurant is already a tough job. You're busy keeping customers fed and employees paid while working with razor thin profit margins. The last thing you should be worried about is if you're doing sales tax right. That's why you should consider automating sales tax for your restaurant point of sale system. Collecting and filing sales tax on your own can be stressful and time consuming. Uh, It can leave your business vulnerable to accidentally missing tax payments or not having enough money in the bank to cover your tax obligations. Davo by Avalara simplifies sales tax for your restaurant and brings peace of mind through automation to help you pay the full amount you owe on time. Just integrate the Davo app with your existing POS like Clover, Toast, Square, Spot On. Set up your business and banking information and then you're done. Davo will take sales data from your POS system and determine how much sales tax you collected on each day. Then it sends a request to your bank to have your sales tax put into a secure holding account. This keeps your sales tax separate from your revenue and helps reduce potential confusion about available funds. You'll get a daily email from Davo letting you know exactly how much sales tax is transferred. When your sales tax is due, Davo automatically remits your sales tax to the appropriate authority on your behalf, in full and on time. Is your restaurant in a state that does on-time filing discounts? If it is, then Davo will automatically send this refund back to your bank. Don't let sales tax spoil your business. Stay on top of sales tax with automation from Davo by Avalara so you can spend less time in your back office, more time in the front of house. Learn more at davosalestax.com slash restaurant strategy and try Davo free for the first month. As always, that link is in the show notes. As promised, we've got two more questions. Question number four, is there a ghost kitchen budgeting model? This is a great question. Uh, I know a lot of people are curious about ghost kitchens, uh, but we've got two separate things here that we've got to sort out. We've got ghost kitchens and we've got virtual brands, and they are different. Most people that I I end up talking to uh, are really talking about launching a virtual brand, not necessarily a ghost kitchen. So let's separate them because they are different, and I think uh, if we can uh, come to a greater understanding of them, uh, it'll help you figure out if this is the right move for you. So a ghost kitchen is uh, is a commissary kitchen, It's a kitchen um, that has no front door. Customers cannot come into that kitchen. So it can be on the second floor, it can be in the basement, it can be in the 80th floor of a building. It can operate out of your kitchen, it can operate wherever. A ghost kitchen is a commissary space where you would execute, where you would uh, uh, create food for a virtual brand. So a virtual brand doesn't exist in real life, meaning people can't come in and order from that brand or pick up from that brand, it is only available on the internet, either through a website or through one of the third-party delivery sites. So a ghost kitchen is just a space, a separate space that would execute these things, right? And we can talk about a ghost kitchen in a second. Let's first define a virtual brand. A virtual brand is a brand that only exists digitally. So it exists on a website, it exists, again, on those third-party delivery sites, right? Just like we said. Most people are asking me, 
I, I find most people talk to me about adding a, uh, a ghost kitchen. Said, so, oh, should we be a ghost kitchen? What they're really saying is, should we add a virtual brand to our business? So most people from, from most restaurants, and the answer is, I, I think maybe, I think, I think maybe, yes. If you've got capacity, if you've got, uh, if you've got room to, to execute more food. So the best way to do this is that if you've already got a restaurant and it's open, let's say lunch and dinner, and it's doing a certain amount of business, and you find your kicks, uh, your cooks are sitting around uh, some time. They're not, they're not totally crushed all the time. Could you take more orders, right? And maybe your brand, right? This restaurant, let's call it Restaurant XYZ, doesn't. Uh, you don't want to do takeout and delivery because it'll diminish the brand or the food won't travel well. Whatever the answer is. But you said, hey, we can take our SKUs, right? You can take all the, the items you bring in and we can put together a more casual menu and we can basically send that out the back door, right? So that delivery people would come in through the back door, wouldn't come in the front door necessarily, would come in the back door um, so that there, there's no commingling, but it's food you could execute out of the kitchen given the staff that you already have. And I think this is a way of adding five, 10, you know, $20,000 a week in revenue if you do it right. And I think for a lot of places, it does make sense. When we're talking about adding a virtual brand, know that it's got to uh, utilize the existing inventory. You don't want to bring in a whole bunch of different product. If you're a steakhouse, you don't necessarily want to run a, a Mexican menu uh, out of the same kitchen because you're going to have to get a whole bunch of items that you wouldn't normally have on hand. So you got to figure out, hey, what can we execute given the existing concept that we have? And often when you're adding a virtual brand, I recommend adding multiples, not just one, but three or four thinking like, hey, it doesn't matter if somebody's in the mood for Mexican or Italian or pizza or steak, we're gonna serve them all. They're gonna order from us no matter what. So keep that in mind as you do that. When we're talking about a budget for a virtual brand, what you need to know is that you've got, again, unmet capacity. You've got room in your walk-ins for the extra product. You've got people on hand who can do the prep work and can pick up the food when an order comes in and it's not gonna screw up the existing customers you already have in the restaurant. The beauty of it is, right, we've got, it costs a certain amount of money to just open the restaurant, right? We have to bring in a garmage, a saute cook, a grill cook, we gotta bring in a chef, we gotta bring in a dishwasher. We have to bring in all these people just to open the doors. So if we're only gonna do $5,000 worth of revenue, what happens if we turn on a virtual brand and we can add another one or $2,000 in revenue, as long as we don't have to bring more people in, that's where we have to start redoing the budget. But if we can execute it with our existing staff, with the, the infrastructure we already have, then it makes a lot of sense and I don't know why everybody isn't doing this. That's the first thing. Now the real question though, and so I'm, I'm guessing this is what you wanted to know, is there a budget for running a ghost kitchen, right? Meaning I wanna go get a space, and I wanna execute food that will only exist on a digital platform, right? It would only be on my website. I'm gonna come up with a brand and I'm gonna execute, I'm gonna create a website for my brand, I'm gonna create you know, a Facebook page for the brand, everything. It's gonna feel like a regular brand. It's just only available digitally. Um, is, there a, is there a budget for that? Here's the beauty of it. It's the same as building a budget for your restaurant. The beauty of it is when you build a ghost kitchen, usually you can find a cheaper space, right? Usually you can run with much lower overhead. 
But I will be honest, you're probably going to do much less business as a virtual brand because people can only order from you one way, which is online, either on the third-party deliveries. They're going to have hefty commissions uh, on those um, or via your website. And so you still need to build a marketing strategy that acquires customers through the third-party sites and pushes people over towards first-person delivery on your website. So you need to build a website. But the budget is still the same, right? So I say you're, you know, you're 30, 30, 20, whatever it is, you need to make sure you can still carve out a 20 to 25% profit margin with that ghost kitchen, which is why I think you're going to figure out pretty quickly that if you're going to go to the effort of building a ghost kitchen, then I would figure out how you can execute, let's say, five or six virtual brands out of that kitchen. So these are either brands that you develop or brands that you license. There are certainly definitely uh, companies out there for you to do it. So I would I would uh, recommend if you're going to do the ghost kitchen, adding four or five brands. So again, if you're going to bring in three cooks to execute on a given night, find a way to make it so those three cooks can execute food for five different concepts, five different virtual brands. So the budgeting is exactly the same. Luckily, your expenses are much lower, but you gotta understand what your rent is, what your utilities are, what your marketing budget is gonna be. Your marketing budget is gonna be much higher than normal because people can't just walk by. You're gonna have to spend money on ads. You're gonna have to spend money on getting a really good presence. You're gonna have to spend money, again, when I talk about the, the third-party delivery sites, I say think of those expenses as marketing expenses, that that 30% commission is a marketing expense because it's customer acquisition cost. So those expenses are gonna be higher. But at the end of the day, like I always talk about, a path to profitability, figure out where you're going, how much profit do you wanna make, right? How much money do you need this business to generate for you? And then work backwards from that, build a budget that will get you there. Just expect on, even though you're paying less for rent, you're gonna pay a lot more for marketing. You're gonna spend a considerable amount of money. So most of the times I recommend uh, restaurants spend about 4% of their revenue uh, on uh, on marketing. And I think yours is probably gonna be closer to eight or 10% if I'm uh, if I'm eyeballing that that correctly. That's, that's what I've seen in, with the brands that I've worked for in the past. So instead of four, you're gonna do eight or 10, you're gonna factor that into your budget. And again, the budget is largely the same. Figure out how much you need this bu- uh, this business to, to yield and then work backwards and see if you think that sort of revenue is even possible uh, to generate that kind, of, uh, that kind of profit. So again, we're talking about ghost kitchens. Let's make sure we're talking about ghost kitchens versus virtual brands. They are different things. They are in the same conversation, but they are different. The last question comes from Bruno. He's uh, over in uh, 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 Vietnam and Hong Kong and Shanghai. Uh, He says here, uh, greetings from the other side of the world. I'm a consultant who works all around Asia, and I listen to your uh, podcast every single week. Uh, I learn a lot from it, and I get a lot of great ideas to implement, even on this side of the world. My question to you is this. How do you see the culinary training in schools, in restaurants, et cetera? How do you see that developing in the future? Should we start training tech and how to use it? So not only how to steam, roast, et cetera, but how to utilize some of these tools. Thanks. Now, again, another great question. I love this question. Um, At the heart of this question, we're really talking about education. And I think really what we're talking about is staff development. And I hope as we move forward, we can... Uh, get better at developing our staff, at uh, giving them uh, a way to grow within the organization and to learn more, because the more they learn, the better they can be for us. So 
here's my my quick answer, and it's not exactly I think what Bruno is asking. Um, I, I never went to culinary school, so I don't know how that will will develop. Um, I think there are there are skills, there are knife skills, there are, there are basic um, there are basic uh, 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 things that need to be taught, right? How to build mother sauces and how to steam and how to roast and um, all of that. I, I understand how how food uh, the, the chemistry of it. Um, all of that will not change. I never went to culinary school, so I can't speak to that. What I will say is the most interesting programs out there, the people that I've spoken to, and I know, for example, ICE in uh, in Lower Manhattan, um, they work a lot with uh, entrepreneurship and sort of a business development. They teach their um, their chefs in training not only how to do all the, that stuff, but really how to run a business, how to think about budgeting and forecasting, and how to uh, how to hold people accountable, how to uh, you know target revenue uh, goals, and and how to uh, keep all your costs in line. Because at the end of the day, restaurants are factories. I've been saying this for about six months now. I'm going to keep saying it. A factory is an unexciting career path. Nobody, I think, sets out to own a factory. No kid at the age of seven says, when I grew up, I want to own a factory. The only reason to open a factory is to know that you can make a widget for $1 and sell it for five. It's the only re reason to open a factory. And our business, though much sexier, much more interesting, much more fun than manufacturing, is much more similar to manufacturing than I think we care to believe. So the benefit is that we work with the greatest products in the world, wine, beer, food, all of these great these great products. We get to host people and show them a good time and be part of their celebrations and all of that. None of that though should be, none of that should be a sacrifice of profitability. So when we talk about manufacturing and when we talk about running a restaurant, there are similarities. In a restaurant, we bring in raw materials, we do something to those raw materials, and then sell a finished product. It's the same thing in a factory. They bring in raw materials, make a product, sell that product. So at its core, we need to learn from manufacturing, from the factories, because we have to be profitable. And as we move forward, as now food prices continue to increase this year, labor continues to go up. And guess what? It will continue to go up ever more over the next 20 years. I promise you. Um, the finances of running a successful restaurant will continue to change and they will get much, much, much harder. And I hope that for the next generation, both back of the house and front of house, I hope we get better at teaching the fundamentals of running a profitable business. Meaning, forecasting, projecting how much revenue we're gonna make, and then setting budgets for food, for beverage, for labor. Setting budgets for ourselves and then holding each department accountable so that they can be profitable, uh, so that they have a fighting chance at profitability. So again, we talk about a path to profitability, you figure out where you wanna go, and then build a restaurant, build a concept, build a budget that will get you there. Too often I see restaurants are built and they say, hey, we're gonna try and sell as much food as possible. We're gonna minimize our expenses as much as possible. And then let's see how much is left over at the end. The leftover at the end is our prize, right? It's the toy in the bottom of the, the cereal box. And that is not a way to run a business. So what I teach my clients is the same thing that I hope the next generation of, uh, of restaurateurs 
uh, of restaurant professionals learn. And I think it's getting hard enough where they're going to have to learn it. So when we talk about big schools like ICE, like CIA, like these big organizations, Escoffier, I think they're going to have to teach business in a very, very real way. Likewise, in our restaurants, I think we have to get better at doing that. And I think we have to get better at educating our people. And I think if there are managers listening to this, if there are people who are on their way up, you have to demand this of your owners, of your general managers. And if they don't know it, you got to go find an organization that does know it, that does this really, really well, right? Not everybody learns it. And I, and I, and I will say, I've worked with hundreds of restaurants over the course of my 22-year career. And I can pretty much name on two hands the restaurants of those 200 that did what I think you have to do to run a profitable organization. That's what I think we should demand more of ourselves, more of our industry, more of the people above us, and then we should educate and empower the people below us. So it starts with education, and then it continues with development. How do we continue people's education as they continue to grow with us? That's how we that's how we create more loyalty with our people. That's how we create better employees who will eventually help us grow. So that's what I think. We're talking about, uh, again, how do we think things are gonna change in the future? That's how, what I think has to happen in the future in order for our industry to move forward. And as we uh, continue um, to add in technology and pretty soon robotics and AI, machine learning, all of that, it's gonna be even more crucial. All of that has to find its way into the education, whether it's a formal education at an organization like CIA or ICE, or just part of a training program or staff development in our restaurants, we can take responsibility of that. So that is that. Those are the five questions I'm covering today. A uh, big thank you to all the listeners, uh, everybody on my list um, who sent in a question uh, for me. I really appreciate it. Uh, hey, guess what? If you're not on my list, uh, you should be. Uh, go to the website, restaurantstrategypodcast.com. Uh, there's an ebook there. You can download absolutely for free. That's the best way to join the email list. You'll get notifications every Monday and every Thursday when there are new episodes. And then I put out a fun little email every Friday afternoon, something to think about, some actionable uh, insights, some tips, some tactic, uh, tons of value on that list. Uh, and again, everybody on that list, I uh, thank you for answering uh, answering my request uh, for questions. Uh, we will continue doing this more as we go throughout the year. Uh, and if you have any questions from time to time throughout the year, even if we're not doing one of these episodes, just email me. So join the list by visiting restaurantstrategypodcast.com. Email me directly with your questions. Maybe I'll turn it into an episode. Chip at chipclose.com. Again, chip K-L-O-S-E.com. Look forward to, hear, uh, to hearing from you. I appreciate all you guys being here. I know there are a lot of podcasts, a lot of different ways you could spend your time. I appreciate you spending your time here with me. Hope you got a lot out of this one. Tons, tons of information. I hope you, uh, I hope you feel good about it. Uh, I appreciate it, and I will see you next time. <laughs>